Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Lowane Smith and Lowane actually reached out to me. He's a listener to the show. So first off, Lowane, thanks for listening to the show and how are you today? I'm doing great. I really appreciate the opportunity of having me on your podcast. No, I appreciate you reaching out. I'm always happy to talk to anyone with reliability. So it's exciting to have you on. And just before we get into it, so Lowane is the asset management and reliability guy. I mean, what's your title? <laughs> uh, asset management reliability manager. It's kind of a new position. Yeah. Yeah, at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So that's pretty cool. And so how'd you, you want to give us a little background on yourself? Like, how'd you get your start in reliability? Like, as I understand, you've been in reliability for about eight months now. Yeah, that's correct. Um, So I started my journey here at the medical center back in July of 2016. Uh, I started off as a zone manager and then uh, got asked to, to go into this maintenance planning and scheduling role because uh, we wanted to get this uh, leadership and facilities award. And that was kind of one of the things we saw as a as a flaw in our system. So I, I agreed and came over. Um, then last summer, I think it was July, August time frame, uh, Paul Crocker, who works at the Board of Public Utilities here in Kansas City, uh, hosted this uh, MUG, which is a Maximo user group. So, of course, I showed up and Paul took the opportunity to stand up in front of everybody and say, hey, guys, here's the uptime elements. If you have any questions, just let me know. Kind of perked my interest a little bit. So I uh, reached out to Paul and said, hey, let's exchange our contact info and let's you know, talk about this further. So we spent the last couple or the next couple of days talking about reliability, what it meant uh, then I was hooked. I said, I, you know, I got to buy these uptime elements to get the passports. I really got to start reading this stuff. And that that's what really sold me right there. Yeah. And you recently got your certified reliability leader certification as well. So congrats on that. Hey, thank you. Yes. That was a pretty big deal for me. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's definitely good to to get going. And, and I think that like, as you continue through your career, you're going to definitely get more into the details, the nuts and bolts. And, you know, there's, there's other certifications, but definitely that one's a good for a high level summary of, of reliability. I agree. I agree. So 
One thing, you know, we've spoken a little bit before, or at least emailed back and forth a little bit about some maintenance management process and and how you have sort of different zones at KUMC. Can you give us a little introduction to the organizational setup? Uh, yes. Uh, so here, our facilities department, uh, we actually split the campus up into five different maintenance zones. Uh, one of those zones happens to be our uh, energy center, the power plant. So all the utilities that, that feed into the, the campus uh, comes from that power plant, if you will. Uh, each one of those zones has a maintenance manager or a zone manager is what we call them. Uh, each zone has roughly four or five uh, craftsmen in it or maintenance techs. Except for the power plant, they actually have like eight or nine techs, but um, their primary duty is to operate the power plant, not necessarily be a maintenance technician. So because we're so spread out, a little diverse, this reliability journey, I was kind of like, we all need to be on the same page. So uh, I wanted to draft like a maintenance management process, more like a continuity book, if you will, where I could document uh, maintenance strategies, uh, risk assessment, our work management process, you know, how important it is to capture data, uh, root cause analysis, some of the metrics involved with that, and then some of the leadership and type of training we wanted under that umbrella there. Yeah, no, that's a like that's a definitely a great start. And it's something where I think if you have like you've spent the effort and the time to to go through that process, it really helps you define what your sort of your five-year goal or your end game looks like. And to me, that's something that not a lot of organizations do well. Yeah, that's that's what I've been hearing and and kind of reaching out to other reliability leaders. You know, they're the ones that really suggested I document this continuity book, if you will, just due to the nature of us having this area level of maintenance management, you know, with the five zones, because, you know, you have five different managers, five different personalities, five different visions, if you will, on how they want to uh, manage maintenance. And so just getting everybody on the same page was one of the best ideas that, that somebody told me to do. So I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad I took their advice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was me who told you that. Uh, I think so. I, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And, and you know, the reason, the reason I said that was early in my career. So we kind of, you know, it's, you have five different zones early in my career. I worked as a reliability engineer supporting, it was six different coal mines, but that's, you know, essentially the same idea. Mm-hmm. And we were doing this, my manager and some consultants were doing some, like the maintenance and reliability best practices plan for the organization. And what ended up happening, they drafted, they spent like, I think it was a couple months, maybe three, four, five, six months in a room. And there was a bunch of posted notes and they drafted all this plan and they came up with a, like for each site, it was like, hey, you'll do RCM on this component. Hey, you'll do root cause analysis on this. You know, our end goal is going to look like that. Our processes are going to look like this. There was all this stuff. And he went to each of the sites and he went to the general managers and he said, 
hey, you know, this is the plan for next year for your site. We need your reliability guys to to do an RCM on this or a root cause on that. And then we'll share it across all the sites and we'll we'll start implementing, you know, in a in another year. Okay. And each of the general managers, they're like, hey, that's you know, that sounds good for us because you know, we all operate roughly the same equipment. And so we can take your findings and it'll be it'll be ready to rock and roll. How did how did it work? Yeah, and so this is where the the kind of the rubber kind of stopped, right? And it was it sounded great. Everyone signed off on the plans, but the day-to-day aspects of maintenance and the day-to-day aspects of operations really took over. And part of that was, I think, was an organizational issue because the reliability people were reporting to maintenance managers and not the reliability manager. The other part of that was kind of what I talked to you about and why I mentioned that you should get the buy-ins from each of the areas and help them or have them help you with the plan because you need that buy-in and that's the facilitation part of it. And that buy-in is really going to help you with, if they develop the plan with you, they're going to execute the plan because it was their idea. Exactly. Exactly. And that, and that's one of the, that was one of the things, you know, drafting this plan, you know, I would email it out and say, Hey, I'll be over at your shop tomorrow at 8 AM. Let's discuss this or, you know, something along those lines. Um, and really trying to get them, yes, to buy into it, but also, you know, they have some other ideas that maybe I didn't really think about. And so being able to communicate through that really, I think, improved the plan or the continuity book, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, I, I never really defined this technique, but I, I guess it will be a few weeks ago, but I was doing a podcast with Peter Horsberg, which will be up at this time when it comes out. And he wrote a book called The Five Habits of Extraordinary Reliability Engineers. And his fifth habit is facilitate to implement. And I couldn't have said it better. It was amazing. Like, what a great expression. Oh, I agree. That makes perfect sense, too. Yep. No, it's great. And it's something, if you're listening, one is check out the podcast and two is you know, you can check out his book. You can order off Amazon as well. Well, I'm going to go to Amazon after we're done, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, Luane, I guess, you know, one of my questions is like, are you or someone in one of these five zones, are they responsible for the medical equipment itself, like the x-rays or the MRI or the other kind of stuff like that? Uh, that's probably a good question. So a few years ago, the university and the hospital kind of made a split, if you will. So the hospital went privatized, and then we still have the medical educational piece. Uh, but we also do, you know, research and all that good stuff. So a lot of the medical equipment itself, since it belongs to the hospital, they have their own asset manager. Um, and so... I, I've tried to reach out and kind of talk with, you know, that person to kind of say, hey, you know, what are some of the things you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's hard to find the time to meet with that person because he is so busy. It is crazy. 
And uh, so I really can't answer how it's like with the MRIs or x-rays or anything like that. Um, but here on the university side, you know, we do have, you know, all your standard facilities equipment, you know, uh, boilers and pumps and steam systems and um, chilled water systems, uh, air handlers, etc. cetera. Uh, but we also have some unique like lab equipment like our reverse osmosis or deionized water systems um, with fume hoods with some sort of laboratory experiments. You know, they have to have this special fume hood and just with the exhaust and the way the, the air and the vacuum and all that good stuff kind of works, you know, it kind of makes a special, special maintenance, if you will. Yeah, it's definitely, any, well, it's definitely different than a lot of the stuff I have experienced with. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Now, is there, like, in the medical industry, is there any, like, special regulations that you have to deal with? Or is it just sort of like, because it's maintenance, it's, it just needs to work? Um, well, there are some regulations in regards to the hospital of, of how you conduct maintenance. Um, we're kind of lucky on the university side because some of those, well, I say the majority of those regulations don't really apply to us. So we can... You know, we could pop ceiling tiles and look overhead for overhead inspections or, you know, anything like that without having to put up like plastic barriers and HEPA filters and all that good stuff. We do have on the university side, like hospital staff and some uh, uh, patient areas on the university side. And so when we go into those spaces, that's where we have to apply those standards. Awesome. When we're looking at, like you're looking at your maintenance program, your reliability program, what are you guys currently doing as a maintenance program? Like, have you done a criticality analysis? Are you doing predictive maintenance? Like what kind of, what kind of stuff are you doing? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I first got into this, the more I read, the more I wanted to do. And I, I think I tried to go too fast. So I had to take a step back, right, and say, okay, what exactly is the right thing to do right now to kind of show this proof of concept, if you will? So the very first thing is we formed a uh, reliability committee, and uh, we drafted a charter for that committee, and I tried to get many different levels of expertise. So I got an engineer, I got another zone manager, I got our customer service type person involved. And I got a, an outsider that came in that can offer that customer perspective, if you will. We did the asset criticality assessment. Based upon that assessment, we started doing some PMOs, preventative maintenance op optimizations on our most critical assets. And then because our power plant is the entire facility is critical, I started working with the committee and said, hey, let's start doing some RCM or, or uh, FMEAs just on the energy center. And uh, what we'll do is we'll kind of, you know, capture that and build our entire preventative maintenance plan on that. So we got started on that. Then that kind of highlighted this. OK, well, we need to, you know, come up with some technologies, if you will, to help us in this proactive or predictive approach that we're coming up with for the energy center. So I started researching ultrasound because to me, I think that like an ultrasound is 
I can get the, the quickest return, if you will, on the investment. So that's why I kind of chose that. And um, so at first, you know, my leadership kind of saw the price tag and they were like, mm, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. Uh, so I reached out to some people I know and actually got a rental unit and um, kind of went to the power plant and started doing some inspections with it. And one of the inspections was our compressed air and said, you know, hey, you know, we could pay for this self, you know, or pay for this equipment, you know, in a short amount of time because, you know, look at this investment. So I finally got buy in from that. And um, so now we just need to purchase the new machine uh, in our new state fiscal year and uh, start creating some some routes and inspections based upon that. Yeah, no, actually, when you said ultrasound, it, so we've talked about that a few times on the show. Ricky Smith brought it up the first time and said it was one of the th quickest ways to to get buy-in. And, and then Sean Miller from UE Systems, he's done, like UA Systems, they have a, a compressed ear savings calculator. And they he even mentioned that, you know, he's paid off or they've paid off, quote unquote, for the unit during the, like they do a free on, like a free one day training when, with purchase and that they've, they've solved a bunch of problems there with, with just that. So it's pretty interesting that you've, you've seen that in practice. Yeah. And each time I use ultrasound too, it's like I'm blown away each time with just the capabilities of this thing. You know, it's, it's phenomenal. Now, are you guys looking at other predictive maintenance tools like oil analysis or vibration? Uh, we are actually, yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a great question. So we have some uh, critical exhaust fans uh, over some of our laboratory spaces. And um, we've been having some bearing failures on those fans. And uh, I decided, you know, to bring the team together and do an RCA and and uh, we kind of realized that maybe our lubrication practices weren't as well as they should have been. So I actually signed up with a local company out of Iowa to come down and provide some lubrication training. And then because these fans are on the roof, you know, and I'm here in Kansas City. And so we have, you know, extremely hot summers, cold winters, and, and really it can change by the hour. You know, you could be freezing in the morning and super hot in the afternoon. But anyway, um, looking at the risk and, and the safety aspect as well, I uh, purchased the uh, automatic lubrication devices for these fans. That way I can eliminate that risk of over lubricating or under lubricating, but also the technician's risk of going up on the roof and climbing this platform to get to the fans. So with that, it's really helped as far as our bearing failures are concerned. But then the next step is I'd like to get some vibration sensors onto those fans. That way we can we can see when a failure is getting ready to happen. And I, I kind of think if I start with those fans and I show a good proof of concept of these vibration sensors of how we're, you know, we're catching potential failures, I can kind of expand that to other other equipment. Yeah, there's definitely like the safety aspects of some of those automatic lubricators and the sensors there's it's definitely huge and the one thing i do have to say about the automatic uh at least the lube ones 
there's there's some that were battery operated and a lot of a lot of plants they think it's it's like set it and forget it yeah you can't do that <laughs> yeah so so i've been in a few plants where i've seen them and they the automatic lubricator like the battery's dead or it's empty and no one's ever checked it in the last few years and you're like okay well you got to go out and even just take a look at it every once in a while yeah, correct, correct. And and the the ones that we got specifically, and I, and I still have the the PM crated, but every three months you you know you have to go up on the roof and change the cartridge out. And when you buy the replacement cartridge, it comes with a new battery. And so what the manufacturer actually states is when you change the cartridge, you also change the battery. That way, it's always got a fresh a fresh battery every three months. <laughs> at least that solves the problem <laughs> exactly exactly so like you're starting to implement your predictive maintenance program like what kind of challenges are you having with that and you've seen a little bit of success with ultrasound are people starting to buy in very slowly and i think a lot of people could say this you know change is very difficult and you really have to look and study and apply these change management techniques, you know, and some people, you know, they, they grew up, if you will, doing maintenance like a certain way and it's been successful for them and it's been successful for any organization they've been in or even our own organization, you know, and, and when you uh, start suggesting new ideas of how to apply certain strategies, you know, sometimes you kind of get that, that uh, kickback, if you will. You know, well, we've been doing it this way for like 20 years. Why do we need to change this now? So I decided not to focus on those people. And I focused on the people that seem to, um, you know, be open-minded about it and kind of get them involved and get them talking about it to where now it's not just me championing this stuff. It's these other folks and and we're still at the very early, early stages of our predictive maintenance stuff. You know, number one, it, it is, I don't want to say costly, but it's an investment. So sometimes you have to talk finance with the finance people to get them to say, yeah, I'll, I'll approve that purchase order for that. Yeah, that's that's one thing. And like when I when I spoke with Paul Crocker, it seems like because are you like you guys are publicly funded, right? Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So there's some different challenges that you have than, you know, me coming from an industrial background. It's it's more like, is it in the budget? If it is, you really only have to convince a couple people and you can usually get it approved. Yes. Yes. And and being state funded too, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, laws and regulations that kind of fall into play when you talk about executing funds. So a lot of times it's a slow process because you have to, you know, study up on these financial regulations, if you will, just to get the approval. So uh, it's not impossible. It's just a little more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it wasn't difficult, we wouldn't be employed. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a true statement. <laughs> so I guess you, you've talked a little bit about getting buy-in. and that's you know it's it's a slow process it's it's slow you know regardless if you're in a hospital environment like you are or if you're in mining or wherever now 
what are some of your plans going forward? So over the next like year or two, what are you looking to implement? Where are you trying to take it? First and foremost, I, I want to get the planner scheduler on board because ever since I've been in this position, even though on paper it says planner scheduler, like I've done no planning and scheduling, you know, from the from the aspect of, hey, you're a maintenance planner, you know, uh, doing asset management reliability, maintenance planning falls under that umbrella. So I really want to focus on everything under the umbrella and not just one process. So first and foremost, get that planner scheduler on board, uh, start drafting those job plans, those time estimations, getting our storeroom involved to start kidding. That way we can drive up our wrench time a little bit. Uh, which I think will uh, show another proof of concept to kind of open the doors to other, you know, reliability type of, you know, expansion. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have a planner now, so what's the process for work happening? (laughs) So we do have a facility coordinator's office, which is like a, a dispatch, if you will. Uh, so when customers request work, it goes to the coordinator's, they review the work and say, yeah, we're going to do it. And then they send it to the appropriate zone that that facility falls under. And then the zone manager will then take that work and do whatever planning and scheduling is necessary. The disadvantage with that is it still, it still makes us be a reactive organization to where no one else sees this work besides the coordinators and the manager. You know, you don't have that middle person like a planner that can look at that work and say, okay, well, we've done this over in this building last week. Here's the job plan for it. Here's the materials we need. This is how much time it's going to take, you know, and let me get everything together. That way, when it goes to the zone, all they need to worry about is scheduling it and executing it, you know, and to me, I think we could take care of our customers a lot better by putting in that, that planner role. Yeah. I I mean, planning and scheduling, it's something that it won't, I mean, it, it may marginally increase the quality of work that's happening, but the big parts of it is it's increases a lot of the efficiency around your work. So, you know, you can start doing kidding. You can start having repeatable processes. You can actually schedule people more effectively. There's a lot of benefits to it that are around that process. And especially like if you're trying to do more work with the guys that you have, it's definitely going to help. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, we already have limited resources as far as manpower is concerned. And, um, you know, if, if I can make the manpower more efficient to get more done. So basically, you know, adding, adding people without technically adding people, um, you know, hopefully that'll free us up to do other type of improvements. You know, maybe it's a infrastructure improvement or something like that instead of just focusing in on, you know, hey, here's a PM or here's a, you know, a CM type work order. Um, so another another goal I have to for this asset management reliability is really has to do with capturing data. And so, uh within the next, you know, six, eight months, maybe even shorter, hopefully, um, I can go mobile with our CMMS system. Uh, cause right now, uh, we don't have the mobile capability. We still do paper-based work orders and stuff. 
So I'd like to, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'd like to, you know, implement the mobility with our CMMS. Um, that way I can capture this data that's going on like right there on the spot. Um, because as you probably know, with a paper-based system, uh, you know, the, the tech will write down some notes on the work order and then, you know, come back to the shop to put it in. And, you know, if it's close to quitting time or something like that, you know, uh, the, the notes that they put in in the CMMS system is kind of short or maybe not 100% accurate because, you know, hey, it's time for lunch, time to go home or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So uh, plus that'll help with capturing that, that failure data that uh, I'm truly trying to focus in on. Uh, that way we have better data to analyze during our monthly committee meetings to find out what exactly is our uh, bad actors, if you will. And then another thing I'm trying to work on too with this mobility is, is uh, downtime. Uh, so that meantime between repair, between failure, which could help us improve our maintenance strategy for that particular piece of equipment. So I think it's I, I, I think so. Those are some of the short term things I think would really give us um, a lot of efficiency gains. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the mobility for the the CMMS on like either a tablet or your phone, it's definitely going to help with that. But the other thing you'll have to make sure is educate your technicians on the value of the data that they're putting in mm -hmm. because you'll want to definitely close that loop. I've seen, I mean, most companies they'll have like the CMMS, the big ones, Maximo, SAP, whatever, JD Edwards, and they all have that functionality to get failure codes and defect codes and this different stuff. And like why at my, one of the big mining companies I worked at, we had all that capabilities. Now, when I was analyzing the data, my number one failure code or failure mode, whatever you want to call it, was was other. <laughs> yep, it was it was unknown unknown. So we didn't ha we didn't have an other. We had unknown, and so <laughs> if only I could solve unknown, I would be a genius. Oh yeah, you'd you'd be a millionaire too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great advice, Rob. I appreciate that. Yeah, training training and the facilitation of why we're needing it is is it, it, you know it's it's critical to the success of this program. Absolutely, and and it's stuff like like if you do toolbox meetings with your guys or those type of things is coming down with them and saying, you know, like hey, you you guys provided us this data, we're able to fix this pump proactively and therefore you know you don't have to come in on saturday to do it those type of of things are pretty beneficial and those conversations to have are good yeah i agree i agree well we got a couple more questions before we get you out of here and and, and i guess one of those ones that that i want to see your perspective on is you know you've been in reliability for like eight months, but you've, you have actually a fair amount of knowledge in it. What are some of the things that you think that, you know, either the industry needs to help educate new people in, into reliability with, or what are some of the things that you've learned that you really just want to shout out to people? I think the important thing is to start small 
So pick something that you can get a big return on quickly because uh, I think that, that creates that buy-in a little faster. Definitely don't stop trying to learn. So when you talk about the world of reliability and asset management, you know, yeah, there, there's a ton of books, a ton of information out there. I'd recommend, you know, reading everything you can get your hands on because you, you have to learn every single day. And even if you think you know something, when you start to implement it or improve the process, you realize that, okay, well, maybe I don't know as much as I know. So let me read some more about this. You know, I think another tip really, and I, and I learned this from Paul Crocker, asset management and reliability really is a, a bottom up type approach, right? So your executive leadership can buy into it and they could support it. But it, you know, if the people at your lowest level of the organization don't see the need or they don't understand it or whatever, it's going to, you know, it's really going to fail. And, um, you know, if you're in a current position and, and, you know, you're just the tech on the floor, you know, reliability starts with you and, you know, communicate it, support it, uh, try to get other people to buy in. But also, you know, if you're that executive leadership position, you know, support the people at the lowest level with what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, that's a that's a great point. And it's something when I started my career, I was working with Jeff Smith. And one thing he used to say is in order to re- improve reliability, you have to change the behavior of the people who physically interact with the equipment. Yes, and that's like, that's those shop floor guys. That's your operators. That's even, I mean, taking it even a little bit step further, it's the people who buy the equipment and put it in the storeroom and take it out and all those steps. And that's really like, if I'm sitting at a desk, I can be the best in the world at reliability. But if I can't change that guy's behavior on the floor, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. And what I've learned in the in this short time I've been on this journey too is, you know, even the best, you know, PMO or FMEA that comes from the committee, you know, if I don't talk to that tech that's actually working on that piece of equipment to get their opinion or or experience or knowledge about that, it's not a very good PMO or FMEA. You know, because even if we spend days and days and days creating this FMEA and I go, hey, you know, Mr. Tech, look at this. And then they go, oh, well, you didn't think about whatever. And, uh, you know, you're kind of like, hmm, that's a very good point. Let me add this on here, you know. So you really got to listen to those guys. Yeah, for sure. I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's something where they, I still love when I walk around plants with some of the the mechanics or the operators and they'll walk by a piece of equipment and you'll, you'll hear their, they kind of perk up a little bit and then they pull out their notebook and they write something down. And I always, I always think it's funny. It's just, that's the expertise that you need to get that right there. They heard something. Most definitely. Yeah. It's it's just I you know they hear something they feel it's too warm it's too cold something doesn't feel right that's what you want to get and that's like if you're just a guy like a reliability engineer and you're not physically out on the floor all the time like you'll miss that and you know that's just how it is you have to get the information from those guys I agree completely 
Awesome. And so my last question for you, Luane, is, you know, do you have anything to plug? Like, I'm not going to go as far as telling people to get sick and go to the hospital at Kansas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not do that. But uh, yeah, but, but do you have anything to plug? <laughs> well, I do plan on attending the uh, SMRP conference in Louisville, Kentucky later this year. Um, and in December, I'm planning on going to Maximo World as far as conferences are concerned. But I am on LinkedIn. I'm a fairly new user on LinkedIn, only about three months. Uh, but you can find me You can find me under LeWayne Smith. I don't really think there's a whole lot of LeWaynes out there. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to find. But uh, yeah, search me out, connect with me. Let's uh, let's talk reliability. Yeah, absolutely. And and like if you're listening, Lewayne's LinkedIn will be in the podcast notes. Or if, obviously, if you came through the podcast from LinkedIn, he'll be tagged in the post as well. So you, he won't be too hard to find. Awesome. Perfect, Lewayne. I appreciate you coming on and spending a little bit of time with us today. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity, Rob. You're doing great things with this podcast. Every time I listen, I learn something new. Uh, just keep up the great work, man. No, I, I appreciate that a lot. And I hope that, you know, what you said, everybody, you know, when you learn, listen, you learn something new. That's that's really my hope for for this show. And and for me, I learn every time I have a new guest on too. So I, I'm, I'm pumped about that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Awesome. So everyone listening, I appreciate you guys listening so much. If you haven't yet, check out my new website, robsreliability.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter.